is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Hey everybody, this is Ben with the Faith Revisited podcast. Uh, today we have a very special interview that we uh, are going to do with Bridget Eileen Rivera, uh, who's got a new book uh, that is forthcoming in October. And I want to make sure I get the title right because it's such an important book, Bridget. Heavy Burdens is the name of the book, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the church. Now, for listeners of the Faith Revisited podcast, Bridget and I were chatting ahead of time. You know that that Trinity Church is a reconciling church. We are uh, openly advocating for change in the United Methodist Church to be fully inclusive of LGBTQ persons. Um, this is at the heart of, of, of our vision for ministry in Savannah and beyond, that, that we uh, seek to reach people with the love of God, and, and we mean all people, stretching those boundaries, um, making those margins wider, as, uh, as wide as possible. So uh, this is just such a timely book, Bridget. And, and uh, we were chatting ahead of time. Usually I do interviews where I know the person in advance, but you and I are just <laughs> meeting and I had a buddy yeah. send me this book on Twitter. I was like, you might want to interview this person. I was like, absolutely I do. So for our <laughs> listeners, Bridget, tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the, the sort of the, the um, motivation behind this book. Yeah. So my name is Bridget Eileen Rivera, as you said, and I am currently getting my PhD in sociology. I teach classes um, at a college here in New York City. And um, I do a lot of advocacy around LGBTQ issues. And so the book is speaking to the experiences of discrimination um, that LGBTQ people have in the church. And I guess a, a big thing that kind of makes this book unique is that I'm coming at this topic um, as someone who holds to the orthodox um, view of um, Christian sexual ethics. And I, I hold traditional convictions. I hold to Christian orthodoxy. Um, and yet I am uh, kind of approaching the Christian churches say, and saying like, look, you can hold to orthodox belief. You can hold to a traditional perspective, but that does not change the fact that LGBTQ people should not be treated this way. Um, that does not change the fact that the ways in which the church is treating queer people is extremely damaging. Um, and we need to change that. We need to fix that and we need to do better. And so my book is kind of walking Christians through, especially Christians um, who hold to orthodoxy, walking them through the damage that is done um, in the Christian church today to queer people. Um, and the reasons why these things are damaging, why it should not be happening, how it denies LGBTQ people the gospel of Jesus Christ, and 
what we need to do to do better, how we need to change to um, make the church a healthy place for queer people. I love that. And, and, and just to break it down even further for, for the average layperson, you, you, you said that you hold to Christian orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Spell that out just a little bit mm-hmm. more. What, what exactly does that mean? So when it comes to the question of sexual ethics, I believe that the Bible teaches that uh, marriage um, is between a man and a woman that God gave um, human sexuality, the purpose of human sexuality is uh, the creation of new life. Um, and that um, human sexuality is fundamentally connected to the creation of new life in some way. Um, and so I hold to that perspective. I hold to that view that's considered the orthodox view within Christianity, the, the traditional or historic view. Um, at the same time, um, I do not think that it is ever okay to hold those beliefs in judgment against those who see scripture differently, who approach who approach scripture differently. Um, and I think it's, it's very harmful when we hold our own beliefs um, on gender and sexuality as a yardstick to judge other people as living in sin. Um, at the end of the day, I, I think whether same-sex marriage is biblical, um, whether... Um, it's okay to identify with a different gender than the one assigned to you at birth. These questions are not um, primary questions of the Christian faith. And I think we need to recognize that people can hold a diversity of views on these topics. They can hold to views that are not orthodox on those topics um, and not be living in sin and not be um, unchristian. Um, or engaging in heresy. These are um, questions that Christians can disagree on and yet still respect each other's faith. Um, And so um, I hold to the Orthodox view, but I'm kind of asking Christians to um, reconsider how we hold those views. Mm. Um, You know, it's not necessarily wrong to read the Bible and be convicted a certain way about what it's saying. Um, but how you hold those beliefs makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I always like to use the, the analogy of, of a clenched fist versus an open hand mm-hmm. that, that a lot of Christians struggle to realize you can hold uh, orthodoxy with an open hand. Bishop Ken Carter's United Methodist Bishop, and he calls it a generous orthodoxy. Yeah, that, that is this tension that. you you can hold that you can be both orthodox and uh, graceful and generous in that in that orthodoxy that doesn't have to be a weapon to bludgeon somebody with like like we do so often. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't have to be you know a measuring stick that we use to you know decide you know how mature someone is in the Christian faith, how you know respectable they they are. You know, ultimately, you know, we can hold our convictions, and you know, I love the idea of you know holding things with an open hand, having a generous orthodoxy. Um, another a friend of mine um describes it as uh, living in contrast instead of opposition. Um, we can contrast other people's perspectives. Um, we can live in a diversity of viewpoints, but that doesn't mean that we need to conflict with each other. Um, we can contrast each other without necessarily opposing each other. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. So 
I guess, and obviously this could just take us the whole interview. So I guess in a brief <laughs> nutshell, what brought you to this place in terms mm-hmm. of, I'm assuming, I mean, you obviously have um, a, a, a great knowledge of Christian history and tradition and, and practices. I'm guessing you at least spent some time growing up in the church yeah. at the same time you encountered at some point that you realized that, that you, you, you were probably a little different than say the majority of peers. Mm-hmm. How did that journey sort of unfold to bring you to where you are? Yeah. Um, it was definitely not an easy journey for sure. And it was not overnight. Um, it, it took years for me to process and think through. And I think, you know, the biggest thing was, you know, for me growing up in conservative evangelicalism, I was homeschooled and, you know, there was definitely the mentality that, um, gay people, queer people, we go to hell. That was just, that was just the thing you know, being gay was a choice. Um, and it was a choice to rebel against God. And because of that, God sent AIDS and would eventually send us to hell. That was just kind of the thinking. And, um, so when I figured out that I was gay, it was definitely a crisis of identity, of faith, of just, um, wondering how I was ever going to reconcile this um, because it it felt to me like it was impossible to be Christian and gay at the same time. And you hear people saying this all the time, um, that there's no such thing as a gay Christian. Um, and so my life kind of seemed to be torn between these two opposing possibilities. Um, either I would just kind of grin and bear it and get married to a guy and have a, you know, typical heterosexual family and just kind of deal with it. Um, but kind of hate my life because, um, I'm, would not actually be attracted to that man. Um, and it would not actually be a life that I wanted. Um, or, um, I get married to a woman and also hate my life because in order to do that, I'd have to abandon my faith. Um, and it felt like I just had these two opposing things. Um, and so, um, I'm celibate. And for me, celibacy came in the midst of that kind of war between like feeling like I needed to be unhappy and completely miserable on one hand or, um, you know, abandon my faith on the other. Um, celibacy kind of came as like this answer, um, where, um, there was a way for me to live my life, um, and live it and be happy and be fulfilled relationally, Um, without necessarily needing to decide what I believed about same-sex marriage. And that was the big um, thing for me is that there was so much pressure around this question. What do you believe about same-sex marriage? Um, And depending upon what I decided about that belief, my entire life depended on it. Um, my salvation, my happiness, my fulfillment, like everything depended upon what I ultimately decided to believe about that question. And so for me, celibacy came as kind of like, I don't know, a a rescue 
from that situation where I did not actually need to figure out what I believe about same-sex marriage in order to be happy, in order to live my life and be fulfilled. Um, and so, um, you know, I chose, uh, to be celibate and, um, once the pressure was taken off of needing to, of like my entire life, depending on whether or not on what I believe about same-sex marriage, it, it became so much easier for me to think about it and come to an honest conclusion about what I believed because the pressure was taken off and I could just, you know, read the Bible, pray about it, think about it without having so much pressure on it. Um, and I, you know, ultimately came to an orthodox view, um, from scripture and, um, you know, the, that is uh, really the perspective that has been the most convicting for me, the most compelling um, for me from scripture. And, you know, I think a, a lot of it has to do with um, the way that I think about the Bible, the way that I see um, the holistic teachings of scripture and how different things all fit together. And, um, and so for me, that has been the most um, compelling um, theological conclusion. Um, and so that's where I've landed. Um, but it's nice to have landed there, um, and uh, still have a fulfilling life open to me. And for so many queer people, um, that theological conclusion is associated with having no options for a healthy and fulfilling life, no community, no no family, no, you know, real relationships. Um, and I think that's a really um, unfortunate thing. I think it's a really tragic thing because it leads to um, a lot of um, mental, mental health issues, mental health struggles, um, and for many, um, suicidal thoughts. Uh, because, you know, they come, they, they have like, you know, we really can't choose what we believe. Um, you know, we all read the Bible and, you know, the Bible, you know, appears to, you know, communicate something to us and that convicts us in a certain way. And, you know, we can't really choose our beliefs, you know, they just kind of come to us. Um, someone, you know, tells me to believe that the sky is, I don't know, like, orange and it's not a sunset and it's clearly blue outside, you know, it's, I'm not going to believe what, you know, does not appear to me to be true. Um, and so, you know, we can't choose our beliefs. They come to us. And, um, when someone comes to an Orthodox view of scripture, um, and is genuinely convicted of that view, but then there is no means for them to live a healthy and flourishing life. Um, it really does feel as like it's a death sentence. Uh, and that's something that, that needs to change. Yeah. I, you know, and I think you bring such a nuanced answer to, to this question because you bring up more than just issues around LGBTQ inclusion. You really bring about issues of just human beings and human flourishing. You mm -hmm. know, here in America, you know, we've been formed, especially folks, you know, I'm older than you, uh, I believe, 
you know, but we're still similar enough in age that, you know, we came up in this whole rom-com generation that, that mm-hmm. you know, everyone's just finding that one true love and somehow your life's not fulfilled if you don't find that one true love. And we forget that in scripture, Paul was a, you know, singleness, celibacy and singleness, and it was a calling for him. And, yeah. you know, for most Americans outside of a monastic order, you know, we think celibacy, like you said, is this, this, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, this like, mm-hmm. like as though, as though your life can't be fulfilled in, in singleness and, um, and celibacy. So, and it's a nuanced answer because I would bet, at least in my experience, there's this dichotomy between orthodox traditionalist views around marriage being between a man and a woman and nothing else. And then those who advocate for, um, LGBTQ inclusion, which most of the time includes recognizing same-sex um, marriage. <laughs> and so you kind of have this little niche somewhere right there in, in the sweet spot, kind of in the middle that, that you kind of hold the one view of marriage, but also say there's a calling and a faithfulness and a, um, a fulfilling life, you know, that's also there to be had um, too. So, I mean, it's a really interesting viewpoint. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I would say my viewpoint, um, you know, in addition to saying like there is a life to be had, um, you know, within Christian orthodoxy for queer people, there is, you know, a flourishing life to be had in Christian orthodoxy for queer people um, is also the corresponding recognition that not all queer people are going to hold to Christian orthodoxy because uh, not all straight people do. Um, it's just not all people do period. Um, and, uh, when it comes to the foundational primary doctrines of the Christian faith, those things are, are non-negotiable. Um, the things that, you know, have been spelled out in the creeds, um, about, um, what the gospel means about who Jesus is, who the Holy spirit is, um, who God is, those are the non-negotiables. But when it comes to something like how we define marriage, um, that is such a tertiary thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, ultimately, we can hold different beliefs on that and not, you know, exclude each other. Um, and that's so important for queer people is to have the freedom to hold Christian orthodoxy if that's when it comes to same-sex marriage, if, if that's what they genuinely uh, believe from God's word, but also to um, come to different conclusions. If that's um, where um, the Bible leads them as they are genuinely searching God's word for answers and they are to ask questions, to search God's word for answers and to come to authentic conclusions. Um, because if, you know, you approach God's word and there's only one right answer from the get go, um, there's no way you can really authentically and honestly, um, you know, uh, search for an answer to the question that you're seeking. Um, you know, the answer is decided to begin with. So, you know, you can't come to an honest intellectual conclusion, um, in, in that situation. So, yeah. Um, you know, in addition to, you know, being in addition to the importance of, of establishing a flourishing life for queer people within Christian orthodoxy. There's, you know, the other side of the coin of recognizing that Christian orthodoxy is not something to be forced upon people um, when it comes to secondary and tertiary things. Yeah. You know, and for me, the, the, the sweet spot 
that I've at least navigated as one who strives to be an ally is, you know, biblical definitions of marriage are just they're checkered to begin with. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got Old Testament and women sold as property and men can just go around and do whatever they want. But, you know, a woman can be stoned to death if caught in adultery. I mean, there's all these different things. And part of it is we just don't realize that from a historical standpoint, the whole idea of marrying someone for love is a relatively new yep. construct. You know, yep. I mean, there's so much in our history of the patriarchy that that women and property were almost, you know, women, slaves and property were almost Mm -hmm. all of equal value and men kind of bartered and bought and sold and those types of things. And then women's Mm -hmm. main role was to procreate. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, the sweet spot has been to say, what is a definition of marriage that could be inclusive of same sex marriage? And for me, I, it comes down to your baptism. Mm-hmm. In baptism, we recognize that that we're given to God, and this is the God who is faithful to us. And so mm-hmm. in return, you know, God longs for us to be faithful to God, right? I mean, this is the story of the Old Testament, the Israelites struggling with their faithfulness, and God wants to, them to be, you know, God's people, and they kind of do it, and then they don't. And, mm-hmm. and so for me, out of that baptism, our marriage is supposed to reflect that faithfulness. That's why for me, monogamy is, is the key. Right. I mean, it's it's about mm-hmm. monogamous it, monogamy in marriage. And, and in return, you know, one would hope that that some form of celibacy or, you know, responsibility and singleness. But that marriage is, you know, too many of my friends who hold conservative views about this, just to, they, they jump to the fallacy of same sex marriage means, you know, we're going to have all kinds of frolicking you know, couples and threesomes and all this other, you know, <laughs> stuff and promiscuity. And I'm like, first of all, have you seen the promiscuity among heterosexuals? Because it's yeah. pretty darn prevalent. Yeah. And second of all, no, I'm not encouraging promiscuity, but I'm thinking about like Deb and Claudia in my church who are just so cute and faithful and adore one another. Like these mm-hmm. couples that just, they've been together for 40 years. You know, I've got a couple in my church, um, two ex-military men, one guy worked for the Pentagon, lost his job and retirement when, when someone ratted on him that he had a partner together like 40 years. And for them, they don't want to get married for them. Marriage is not in the, but they're devoted partners. And so Mm -hmm. that faithfulness Mm -hmm. reflects the faithfulness of God to us. And so I think we're called to be faithful to one another in relationship. And that's just shorthand of the sweet spot, but I totally, you're right. There's this huge spectrum that we, we don't realize there's just a wide sort of latitude of, of understandings. And like you said, not to push one rigid, um, whether it's inclusive or not, being inclusive yeah. can be rigid too. Um, you know, a uh, set of beliefs, especially the ter- secondary and tertiary ones in, in Christian thought. Yeah, exactly. And I love what you uh, pointed out about, you know, the whole concept of marrying someone for love is is a very recent concept. Um, You know, I think historically, um, most people married each other for economic reasons. That was what it was. And, you know, that was part of the reason why arranged marriages wasn't really that big of a deal because, you know, you weren't marrying um, someone that you really cared about. You're marrying someone who, you know, was going to increase your, you know, economic financial situation. Um, which is why also I think, uh, you know, historically friendship was so much more important to people, um, because there wasn't this expectation that your marriage partner would provide, you know, everything that you need 
relationally in life. Um, you know, it, it, there, the, that expectation didn't exist at all. Um, and so there was a greater understanding that we need friends. Um, we need more than, you know, just this one person, um, which I think we've lost. And that's one of the things that I really love about the queer community is, um, the fact that it kind of, um, has kind of brought back to the surface, the importance of friendships, of Mm. relationships outside of the marriage nexus. Um, you know, queer community brings the whole concept of chosen family, um, to the forefront and chosen family, I think is just a beautiful thing that really is, is a concept shared in Christianity. This idea that, um, you have family that, um, you have ties with that are not biological. Um, you are brought together with people, um, and you have, you know, soul ties, spiritual ties that are, you know, you know, not related to, you know, who your parents are, you know, whether or not you have, you know, blood relationships, it's, um, you know, something beyond that. And, um, I really love that because it kind of breaks down this concept of like the nuclear family being the essential relational building block of society, which similar to the whole concept of a romantic marriage is also very new. Um, the idea of a nuclear family is, um, like would not be even intelligible if you were to go back, um, even 300 years ago. Um, like it's completely new, completely a result of modern society. Um, and you know, our concept of the nuclear family, you have yourself, a spouse and three children, and they are your world. Um, it's not biblical, that's not how we are meant to be relationally connected um, into the world. And I think um, queer people especially do a really good job of kind of breaking down these assumptions that we have about marriage and about, you know, family being just the people that you have blood relationships to and like, be like, no, like community needs to be more expansive than that. And relationships are, you know, more beautiful than just that. Um, and I, I really love that a lot. You know, I, I love that response, Bridget, because it kind of brings me to my next question. Besides being a pastor and doing this podcast and all the other things, um, I, I am a husband and, and a father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I hear what you say uh, about the, the uniqueness of, of the queer community sort of breaking down barriers of definition of family. And in my experience uh, of learning from queer friends, sometimes that is, um, you know, uh, a choice that's made, you know, willingly. And sometimes that's something that you're forced into because mm-hmm. you're rejected by your biological family or your home church or whoever it may be. And, and, and you're, yeah. you're, you're, you find each other on the margins. And so mm-hmm. I would love to hear you know, I'd love to ask you for parenting advice and for anyone who <laughs> is a parent out there who, who have young kids who are yet to fully discover their identity, right? I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. I mean, they're just at the beginnings of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, and kids these days are incredibly smart. Like my nine-year-old understands, we were having a conversation and she talked about um, some, some, something and understanding this is gender non-binary. And I was like, where did you learn that? Now, I <laughs> just learned that term like in my thirties. But yeah, smart and they're mm-hmm. very perceptive. And so yeah, for all the parents out there who have kids who are 
yet to fully discover their identity. What would you say are just a couple of important points on parenting to give space for a child to fully discover their identity, even and especially if it could be beyond the, the, the gender normative heterosexual one thing, yeah. sort of stereotype? With? Yeah, uh, I think probably one of the most important things is you know, don't assume that your child is going to be straight and cisgender. Um, cisgender is the term that refers to someone who identifies with the gender assigned to them at birth. Um, don't assume that that's going to be your child, especially as they grow up, they get to know themselves more. Um, you know, as children get to know themselves as they develop, as they, you know, start to become their own person. Um, there's a whole wealth of different ways that they are going to develop and become different people than what their parents expect of them. Um, and gender and sexuality especially um, is a major one that often shocks parents um, because it feels to them as though they are almost losing the child that they thought they had. Mm. Um, and so I think probably one of the most important ones is to not assume that your child is straight. Don't assume that they are cisgender. Um, you know, don't assume that you know that, um, you know, because they're discovering themselves. They're learning more about themselves every day and they need to have space and freedom um, to, uh, you know, become their own person. Um, and so, yeah, don't assume. And I think another big one um, is to, uh, make sure that your child um, sees you treating other queer people with respect and honor and dignity, um, regardless of their life choices, regardless of what they believe. Um, make sure that your child sees you speaking positively of them, um, respecting who they are as people, um, and you know, engaging in relationship with them, you know, normalize that um, and make sure they see that um, because um, if they don't see that, um, they are going to assume that you are not okay with queer people, um, period. Even if you never say anything, even if you stay silent, um, research has shown that silence in, in, in the absence of stating an opinion, um, when we are silent, other people fill in whatever the majority opinion is. Mm. Um, and so if you are silent, your child is going to read into your silence um, the condemnations that exist within the broader church culture. They are going to assume that you believe that where people are condemned. They're going to assume that you don't agree with their lifestyle. You're, they're going to assume all of these things um, because that's what the broader culture um, says. And uh, that goes even for parents that are in progressive churches um, because these narratives are so pervasive in Christianity um, uh, that if you don't explicitly express your love, your support, your respect for queer people, um, in the absence of that, in that silence, um, your children will fill in um, what the majority 
narrative is. And so it's, it's important for children to grow up seeing you respect queer people explicitly, um, seeing you engage in relationship with them, because that will send your children the message um, that you are a safe person. And if they do um, come out as queer, um, that they can um, confide in you um, and talk to you about it and um, not be worried that they are going to lose your love and respect. And that's ultimately what this is all about, is making sure that your children know that you love them, uh, regardless of the person that they turn out to be when they grow up. Um, yeah. And that's, that's essential, is that your children know that you love them no matter what. Um, and so, yeah, always having that at the forefront of your mind. No, I, I, I love that advice as a parent. I, I just soaking it all in because a couple things that it sort of made me think of. One is you do want to be that safe person if, if, and when your, you know, child does come out and, and on the flip side, say your child is cisgender, you know, heterosexual, I would hope that I could equip my child to be a safe person that a friend mm-hmm. of theirs could come out to yep. Yep. because I'm realizing from stories, it is, it is hard. Um, or, I mean, this is why the queer community thrives with one another. This is why, you know, as you know, it, folks on the LGBTQ spectrum, you know, tend to find people like them because it's hard when you feel so different to come out to, you know, someone who represents the standard of what, society says you should be so you want to go out of your way to be a safe person the other thing Mm -hmm. think of is is and i love the way you put it as parents i'm learning again not in four right i'm I'm in the thick of just like learning to be a parent still but one of the hardest things as a parent is learning how to give your child agency Mm -hmm. because you know when you've got this little creature that you you know wipe their nose and bottom and feed them and (laughs) all the time it's hard to like realize that you're on this slow journey of giving all of that away yeah. so that they can do it by themselves. You know, yeah. you always love to be needed as a parent mm-hmm. and um, learning how to let go of some of that, finding their per- their own personhood. Cause I agree with you. I think for a lot of parents, they have a standard and an ideal. And when they find out that their child doesn't match that, it's not mm-hmm. always so much that they don't love the child as much. It's that they have to go through a grief process Yeah, that the child I thought I knew is not that child anymore. And so where, where we sort of stop that on the front end is by holding very loosely mm-hmm. to the, the person we think they are. And it's almost like you're on a, a journey of discovery with them, except you've got yeah. front row seat and they're the primary actor. Yep. And you're yep. just watching the show sort of unfold in many instances. And, and as much as you want to get on stage and do it for them, you realize you just can't. It's yep. Yeah. So yeah. I love that. That is so true. Just like giving your children agency. And um, obviously, you know, when children are young, um, they're just as a natural product of being young, they're going to have less agency. Um, but like having a sensitivity for knowing when they're, when to let go, when to, you know, step back slowly as you are, you know, kind of handing things over to them as they are discovering themselves. And I love that, just that that idea of like taking a front row seat and like, it's really, it's ultimately, you know, they're the driver of their own car and you're the passenger and, you know, um, 
letting them kind of, yeah. I can share with you a quick story just from today. You know, my daughter's been at this church now since she was like four. So it's really the only church she remembers. And, you know, we're Mm -hmm. a reconciling church and we're so lucky to have, you know, as part of the tribe sort of influencing her life, LGBTQ persons. And so it's absolutely normal. It's celebrated. It's just, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, June is Pride Month and we hang a pride flag in front of our church and she sort of absorbed that this is a celebration mm-hmm. of, of inclusion, that it's great yeah. to include people. So she's going to summer camp next week and it's a, it's a church camp and um, in the packing and buying supplies and all this, she gets these buttons because at Target this month, it's just all pride stuff. You know, it's just they're mm-hmm. unloading all yeah. the Yeah, yep. And she got these little pins and, you know, there's like a rainbow pin and one that says ally and something else. Anyway, she's got this intention. She goes to camp. She wants to put the pins on her duffel bag. Okay. It's just sort of a, I'm, That's decorating, great. I'm decorating my duffel bag kind of thing. <laughs> well, I immediately as a dad said, okay, as a pastor, I celebrate this because she's just mm-hmm. intimately linked that these things go together, the gospel and inclusion, right? Yeah. But as a dad, I'm like, oh man, what's going to happen mm-hmm. if picked on? What's going to mm-hmm. happen with some kid who, you know, doesn't understand like like I'm I'm being overly protective in long story short we had this whole conversation it was so amazing because you know I said do you realize that most churches are not like our church at least Methodist churches and that we're a little different and she's like mm-hmm. yeah I know people don't agree with this I'm like okay so you're okay like if you know get picked on or whatever and she's like it's not going to bother me like if you don't mm-hmm. agree with it fine but you don't have to say something Mm-hmm. She basically said, I know what's right and I know what's not right. And I'm not worried if it's someone says something. And I was like, that's amazing. That's a pretty good answer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more, <laughs> a lot more greatest than I would have been at nine yeah. years old. Yeah. Um, so it's just that's one of those amazing. lessons. Like it's amazing to sit and learn, you know, on that journey. Um, mm-hmm. It was like I said earlier, kids are so much smarter and, and informed now than when I was growing up. Yeah. I mean, they're perceptive and they pick up on the conversations that are unfolding around them. And so, um, yeah, if you are raising your, your child to think this way and to, you know, have a understanding of a lot of these issues, then, um, and you know, you're even talking, you know, not even directly to her, but to other people, um, you know, kids pick up on those conversations. They're listening to us 24 seven and they're absorbing what we kind of put out there into the yeah. world. Yeah. Andy Stanley says for parenting, one of the most important laws of parenting is more is caught than taught. Yep. Kids yep. catch it more than you directly can teach it to them. And so you mm-hmm. understand that that's how they learn. And that's, that's important. Bridget, this has yep. been such a great conversation. I want to do a rapid fire question at the end, but I want to remind listeners that your new book is forthcoming, but you can pre-order now. We'll have links in the show notes. Uh, yep. to that book comes out at the end of October, Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. We're so grateful for this conversation. So are you ready for a rapid fire game? Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So the first question we always like to ask uh, our podcast interviewees is uh, you teach at a college right now and you're working on your PhD. Yep. If you could rewrite your life, wave a magic wand and failure was not an option, what would you be doing? I would be in computer science if I could rewrite my life. And, and what I'm currently doing is not an option, 
computer science. I've always loved programming. I've always loved um, building uh, websites and, you know, all of that sort of stuff, um, building programs. I'm not really talented or gifted in that at all. But if in this alternative world, failure is not an option, then yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I would want to be in computer science. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Question two. I always ask people favorite vacation spot. You got a uh, lake, mountains, beach, but you could just name a place. Definitely the beach. 100 percent. Definitely the beach. Um, uh, has to be the ocean beach. It can't be like some kind of fake beach that they have, like in the Midwest, like, sorry, anybody that lives in the Midwest, but those just, they just don't cut it for me. It has to be an ocean beach. Um, and yeah, I'll be happy. Well, you need to come down and see us in Savannah because we are 30 minutes from the beach. I mean, we are right okay. on the coast of Georgia. So that is one of nice. the advantages of living here. Um, all right. <laughs> so last question. I wanted, I always like to make this one unique. I think I want to ask you a food question. Okay. If you were to design your perfect dinner, mm-hmm. what would it be? Okay. Um, this is a, this is a tough one. Um, because I'm vegetarian, um, and like probably one of my, um, favorite meals is like, um, a Puerto Rican dish that's kind of eaten around Christmas, around Christmas. Um, it's called Loroco Candulas and you have it with, um, um, it's like, it's rice, um, and pigeon peas and you have it with like a salad and, Mm. um, and it's a, it has like a giant ham that's roasted in the oven. And, um, it, it's like, it's amazing, but I'm vegetarian. So <laughs> it's, 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 ugh, it's always the challenge around Christmas time. Cause my mom makes like a giant Christmas dinner, um, with, um, something called tostones, which are like, um, fried, um, uh, platanos or fried, uh, uh, plantains is what they're called plantains and like getting this Spanish word stuck in my mind, um, fried plantains. And she makes this whole thing. And it's always like so hard because, um, uh, like I can have all the vegetarian things, but then the like, you know, rest of it, I'm like, ah, oh, wish I could have it. But yeah, that would be, that's like my perfect meal. Um, my favorite. And if like I were to cheat sometimes being a vegetarian, that's when I'm like tempted Um, and I've like sometimes thought like, if I like, I don't know, maybe one of these Christmases I'll like have a bite, but then I'm like, no, I can't do that. But uh, it's, it's just the way it is. (laughs) One of my favorite vacations, my wife and I went to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and we kind of went off the beaten path to a place where they had like roosters at the little arena that roosters would fight next door. And it was sort of a very local place. And we just said, whatever your sample platter is like a little bit of everything, we'll have that. I can't Mm -hmm. tell you what all was on there. Fried plantains definitely were, uh, but it was some of the most amazing dinners that we have always remembered. Um, So I'm definitely with you on how Uh amazing Puerto Rican food is. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. The book is Heavy Burden, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. It's coming out uh, October 26th. You can pre-order now. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Bridget, it was such a joy to be with you today. Yep. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on Faith Revisited Podcast.